Do you find yourself searching for true crime podcasts that are different from what you're always recommended? Do you want to make a real difference in the cases that you're following? Well, you're a crime junkie. And I'm Ashley Flowers the creator and host of the number one true crime podcast, Crime Junkie. There are hundreds of episodes already available, and each Monday we dive into the details of cases spanning from some of the most infamous to those that you have never heard covered before. Listen to Crime Junkie podcast now, wherever you're listening. Love is more than a day on the calendar or a sign-off on a letter. Love starts with you. Show off your personal style with new Pandora jewelry pieces that radiate with your love from every angle. With Pandora's vast selection of rings, bracelets, earrings, necklaces, and charms, there's endless ways to show what's in your heart. Write a love note to yourself or your best friend with handwritten charms or a personal engraving. Shop now at Pandora.net. Pandora. Be love. State Farm helps you win by helping you create an affordable price just for you. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Our card this week is Corey A. Mitchell, the two of spades from Ohio. May 29, 2010 was supposed to be a normal Saturday for 34-year-old single dad Corey and his 11-year-old twins. But a brazen masked gunman had other plans. Authorities in Dayton, Ohio, have spent the last 13 years trying to figure out who was behind that mask. I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is The Deck. The sweltering spring sun had just set as Corey and his 11-year-old twins, who we'll call Aisha and Dawn, arrived home after running some Sunday errands. Corey parallel parked their car where they normally did in front of an abandoned residence right across the street from their house. Pizza box in hand, they all hopped out of the car and were expecting to run inside to settle in for the evening. But instead, they found themselves running for another reason. A masked man flashing a gun emerged from the overgrown lawn of the abandoned house and fired off a single shot. Corey yelled for Aisha and Don to run, and as they did, they heard the gunman say something to their father that would be seared into their minds forever. CM Dub. That's Corey's nickname. All at once, the gunman began firing wildly at the trio, striking Aisha in the leg. As she crumpled to the ground in pain, she watched as the gunman turned and targeted her father. He is hit multiple times in the legs and the arms. He goes down. The suspect comes over, stands over top of him in execution style, fires multiple shots into him. After littering the scene and Corey's body with countless rounds, the shooter fled on foot as neighbors sprang into action, notifying police and rushing to the street to see what was going on. Within minutes, an officer was on scene with Corey, who was somehow clinging to life. 
Here's Detective Nathan Vi describing what the officer witnessed. He was bleeding heavily. He was laying on his back, and he approached Mr. Mitchell, noticed that he was having difficulty breathing, and he asked immediately, who shot you? And Mitchell stated, I don't know. Another officer asked Mitchell to describe the suspect who had shot him, and he responded again by saying, I don't know. And then they asked if he had been having any problems with anyone, and he also stated, I don't know. Corey was quickly slipping away into unconsciousness as EMTs loaded him into the ambulance. And right away, first responders were alerted to their second victim. They heard a yelling that was coming directly behind them. They turned around and saw Isha. At that time, she was being helped down the street, but she had blood running down her left leg. Upon coming over to her, they realized that she'd suffered a gunshot below her left knee. As Aisha was being treated, authorities began working with her and her brother, Don, who miraculously was unharmed. They gave a description saying he was a black male about the size and weight of their father. He was wearing a mask on his face, but they could only see his eyes. The mask did not cover his head, and they could see that he was bald. He was wearing a white long sleeve t-shirt, black pants, black boots, and black gloves. As responding officers were getting the scene under control, they received word that their aggravated assault case was officially a homicide. Corey had been pronounced dead shortly after arriving at the hospital. That's when the investigation kicked into high gear. Crime scene technicians scoured the area collecting evidence, and there were two key items that they discovered. First and foremost, shell casings, and lots of them. Secondly, a tea bottle that they had found in the grass of the abandoned house. They sent the bottle off for DNA testing, hoping they could pull a profile from it. And for the shell casings, they entered those into Nibin, which could offer more immediate results. But unfortunately, there were no hits. Other officers were canvassing the neighborhood with little luck as well. There was only one woman willing to talk to them or admit that she even saw anything, but she wasn't able to offer much. She heard several gunshots, and her daughter had been outside, so she came to check on her seven-year-old daughter, and her daughter told her that somebody had been shot. She thought originally her daughter was joking until she looked down the street and saw a man laying in the street and a small girl screaming and crying. And then she went down the road to help the little girl. It seemed the only eyewitness to the shooting were Corey's own kids. And their statements alone made it clear to investigators that this slang was far from random because of what the shooter had said to Corey, calling out his nickname, CM Dub. That was the indication he either knew him personally or at least was affiliated with him enough to know this was the targeted person that he came to have contact with. When investigators took one look at their files, they only grew more convinced that someone specifically had it out for Corey. In the past month alone, there had been two separate police reports filed by Corey. The first incident occurred just three weeks before the murder. I'll let Detective Vi give you the details. May 8th at 6.45 in the evening, Corey was coming out to get into his vehicle. And he was approached by two suspects. They later pulled him out of the vehicle. They threw him onto the ground. One of the males said, we're going in, and they pointed to a gun at him. He stated he began rolling on the ground away from the truck and the suspects toward the sidewalk as quickly as he could, and the suspects fired one or two shots in his direction. The suspects fled on foot, and Corey called the police. 
Detective Vai said that as far as he knows, no shell casings were collected from the scene, which could mean that the suspects used a revolver. Or it's possible that the responding officers that day just maybe didn't look very hard since no one was hit. Anyway, the responding officers talked with Corey and asked if he had any problems with anyone lately. And he said, actually, yeah. He stated he had some problems with an ex-girlfriend, stated that she had broken out the windows in his car before. As far as I know, there wasn't much more done in that particular case from an investigative standpoint. Police weren't able to find the guys responsible, and I don't know if they even talked to this mysterious ex-girlfriend that Corey mentioned. But it wasn't long before that robbery attempt was the least of Corey's worries. Just one week later, he received some texts that seemed to really spook him. On 5.15, at about 9 o'clock in the evening, Corey called in a complaint basically stating he was receiving threatening text messages, and he gave a specified phone number. He went on to state that the messages contained several threats involving him, hoping he does not have any children and the individual will be seeing him soon. So, vague death threats are what he was receiving. But here's the weird thing. There appears to be no follow-up with this. Nobody ever had any additional contact with Mr. Mitchell related to this report. So zero follow-up done on these threats. Death threats that happened two weeks before he was gunned down outside his home in front of his children. They didn't even try and trace the number back to anyone or even take, like, screenshots of the messages. Detective Vi was also confused as to why the ball was dropped on this. But he did kind of offer a possible explanation, though it's not an excuse. This came in as a memo. This was not actually made a crime complaint, which is very unusual. Detective Vi explained that a memo is a tool often used by law enforcement just to document something, especially an incident that doesn't rise to the level of an official crime, because a memo doesn't require the same follow-up like a typical crime report does. But in this case, Vi questions the decision. From what I see, this is definitely would meet the requirements for a crime report for menacing. There was no going back and fixing what officers two weeks prior hadn't done. But investigators now understood the gravity of those messages, that they very likely could have been sent by Corey's killer. So they began trying to hunt down who that number belonged to. Phone records were requested for the number that appeared in reference to the 515 case where Corey had received the threatening text. Problem was, this was 2010. Things like this, even today, aren't immediate. So they just had to wait. The investigation was off to a pretty slow start. And Corey's family waited with bated breath as they tried to figure out how to continue without their beloved CM Dub. Corey's mother, Carol, who lived an hour away, was stuck replaying their last conversation, which happened just after the attempted robbery incident. And it was going over and over in her head. I can hear it right now. After they tried to shoot him, he called me in that panic. And I said, Corey, 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 come and stay with me till whatever's going on cools down. And he said, oh, I'm, I'm all right, Mom. I'm, I'm all right. I'm going to be all right. And I just kept begging him, please, please come. This is the last words that I heard from his voice. He said, Mom, if something happens to me, 
Carol had hoped she would never have to fulfill Corey's grim wish. But that nightmare scenario was now her reality. She took Aisha and Don in and did what she could to fill the gaping hole that had been left in their lives. On June 4th, six days after his passing, Carol and the twins said goodbye to Corey for the final time as they laid him to rest. And it was there, at Corey's funeral, that something unexpected happened. A mysterious young woman approached Carol, claiming to have information. Texas Pete is the sauce that allows you to sauce like you mean it. It's what people gather around. It's generosity in its simplest form. And it's a swagger people have who know what's good. Each Texas Pete sauce is packed with bold, balanced flavor. The signature tanginess is what makes it a legendary hot sauce that can be used on just about anything. It has been at the center of dinner tables since 1929 and is still heating things up today. You're definitely going to want to try every flavor. The original hot sauce has a famous secret blend of fermented peppers. The hotter hot sauce is three times hotter than the original and not for the faint of heart. Sabor by Texas P adds authentic Mexican flavor. And their dust-dry seasoning matches the flavor of the original hot sauce in a flavorful dry rub. I actually put that dry rub on my chicken last week and loved it. Texas Pete, sauce like you mean it. Visit texaspeat.com and use the store locator to find Texas Pete products as well as purchase sauces and get recipe inspiration. And use promo code DECK24 for 20% off at texaspeat.com. Busy parents have enough on their plates without adding your children's homework to the list as well. IXL is an excellent resource for homework help, which is especially nice for parents who are rusty on school info themselves. And methods have changed over the years, too. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. It's designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback. And you get one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. There's a reason why IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Backed by research, kids using IXL are scoring higher on tests. From studies done in almost every state in the country, the kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. If your child is struggling, this is the smartest investment you can make. A month of IXL costs less than an hour of tutoring, so now you could get your child the help they need at an affordable price. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And the DECK listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash DECK. Visit IXL.com slash DECK to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. We were at my son's funeral, and I was sitting, and this woman walked up to me, the young girl. She looked appeared to be maybe about 19 somewhere around in there, teenager, 20s, whatever. And she spotted me out. I don't know if she knew I was Corey's mom. I think she probably did, because where we were all sitting. And she came up to me and she handed me a piece of paper. And she says, "Um, I know everything that happened that day. Give me a call. The woman said her name was Brandy. And by the time Carol registered everything the woman said, she had already walked away. My family members saw her too. And so they asked me, they said, who was that? I said, I don't know. 
I said, but she left me this note. And I put it in my purse. And then when we got ready to get in the limousine to go to the uh, graveyard, I kind of turned my head and looked back at the door. And she was on the ground crying, just sobbing like a baby. After the funeral, Carol immediately turned the woman's note over to police. But when investigators gave the number a call, it was out of service. An unfortunate dead end, but far from the only thread investigators were trying to follow, because the tip floodgates by this point had opened. Remember that ex-girlfriend I talked about earlier, the one Corey mentioned after the attempted robbery? Well, it turned out Corey wasn't the only one getting a bad vibe from her. Her information came up from numerous people who advised that we should probably look to her. And the belief was that some of the statements that were made to Corey by way of the text may have involved her. Corey's mom, Carol, was one of the people highly suspicious of this ex-girlfriend, who we've been asked to call Danielle. Danielle and Corey had dated for about two, two and a half years before calling it quits just a few months before Corey was killed. Carol told WHIO that Danielle had been known to behave irrationally in the past, even going so far as to steal Corey's house keys and make copies for herself so she could pop by unannounced. I will tell you that uh, the victim's mother and children and family were all spoken to, and they conclusively stated the only time they ever heard the victim ever in a confrontation with anybody over the phone, it was always involving Danielle and that they fought often on the phone. Corey's kids said that the last argument had happened the day of the murder. Like Corey had been on the phone with Danielle all day, just arguing and arguing. About what, no one seemed to know, but their breakup was still relatively fresh. Again, they had just ended things, you know, three, four months prior. So I feel like it's reasonable to assume it had something to do with that. But we may never know for sure. Now, with every new bit of information police learned about Danielle, their suspicions were only growing. So they tracked her down and asked her to come to the station for a chat. Here's Detective Vi reading a summary of how that interview went. Danielle said she last talked with him on the day of the shooting around 5 p.m. She supposedly called him from her phone. He told her he was getting his hair cut, and they hung up. Danielle stated she knew Corey began receiving threatening text messages on his phone. Danielle stated Mitchell did not share with her any concerns or ideas about the threats. She related he did not talk about that side of, of his life. She did know that he had relations with other females and that he knew that she did the same. Danielle denied involvement or knowledge in the victim's death. She stated that she loved him and they had no problems with their friends with benefits arrangement. Detectives asked Danielle how she found out about Corey shooting. She related her daughter has a friend who called telling that police cars were at Corey's house. Danielle said she was at a party in Jefferson Township when she found out, and her friend and brother drove her over to see what was going on. Now, this stuck out to police because here she was admitting that she came to the scene the day of the murder. But a relative of Corey's had told police Danielle claimed she was out of town that day. So things weren't adding up. Investigators asked Danielle what she knew about the threatening texts Corey had received. And she said she knew about them, but couldn't remember what they said specifically. 
but she had a clear memory of a suspicious text that she'd received about three months prior, right around the time she and Corey broke up. She claimed it said, quote, you need to stay away from him or you're going to get it. That was not confirmed. Daniel did not know who sent it, and she no longer had the message or the number. That seemed convenient. Police asked Danielle to return to the station at a later date for a polygraph, and she agreed. Police figured out who sent those threatening texts to Corey. They came from a guy whose nickname is Mook. And believe it or not, Mook's number also appeared on Danielle's call log. Naturally, when Danielle returned to the police headquarters for the polygraph, investigators had some questions. They asked her about Mook, and Danielle claimed to not know anyone by that name. They pressed her about the call that she had received from his number, and at first she said that the number sounded familiar, but she didn't know why. But after further questioning, she admitted, okay, she did know Mook after all. And she did receive a call from his number the day of Corey's murder. But, she says, it wasn't Mook on the other line. Supposedly, it was a guy who we've been asked to call Lee. Danielle said Lee, Mook, and her brother were all good friends, so she knew the two pretty well. And she told police she'd actually seen Lee the day of the murder. And the conversation they allegedly had made investigators' ears perk up. Danielle was at a ball game. Lee drove up on a scooter and began talking to her. Danielle stated Lee asked her questions about Corey, such as if he had a gun, where did he keep it, how much money does he have? Danielle said she thought nothing about the questions, but looking back now, she believed Lee was looking to rob Corey. When asked further, Danielle stated she had some feeling that Lee was going to rob Corey, but she denied knowledge of setting anything in motion or that Corey was going to be hurt. She went on to say she did receive a phone call from Lee using Mook's phone asking her, did you see the news? He then called her back and told her, I'm through, bitch. Danielle's interview concluded and she was sent on her way. But I know what you're thinking. What about the polygraph? What were the results? And that's what I said too. But get this, she wasn't given one. Like, obviously, they have documented that she showed up for the polygraph as planned, and they had this whole big conversation with her about Mook and Lee. And in my mind, they have every reason to want to use the polygraph to see if all of this stuff that they were finding out is true or what. But today, they don't have any record of a polygraph actually happening. In fact, at the bottom of the interview summary from that day, there is a note that says, no polygraph. Detective Vi was just as confused by this as we were. So he asked DPD polygraphist Detective Elizabeth Alley if there would be any reason why a polygraph just wouldn't be administered if someone specifically came in for one. Detective Alley said that she'd seen it before, like if there's a medical issue or the person just flat out changes their mind and refuses to submit to one. But as far as I know, neither was the case here. So why didn't it happen? Your guess is as good as mine. After Danielle's interview, investigators' sights were set on Muck, and even more so on this guy, Lee. And that suspicion only grew when detectives connected Lee to a number that Danielle had been texting, specifically these three damning messages. On May 15th, the day that we know Corey got that threatening text from Muck's phone, Danielle wrote to Lee, quote, 
I want you to kill that N-word. Three days later, on May 18th, she texted Lee's number again. Kill, kill, kill that bitch. And on May 24th, she sent, kill that N-word. Just come into some more money. Which we took it to believe that she had come into some money. And based upon that, she was trying to give him an incentive. Armed with this information, investigators made interviewing Lee their top priority. And as it turned out, he wouldn't be hard to track down. I can remember sitting in my high school Spanish class, looking down at the ground, just hoping, desperately hoping, I wouldn't get called on. Because languages have never come easy for me. And even after all those years of studying in school, I felt so insecure. Then as my husband and I started exploring international travel recently, he convinced me that it was time to give language another try. So naturally, we found Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop or can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone offers 25 languages and they have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing your words. As my family continues to explore future travel, I know I'm going to take advantage of that because I want to feel as confident and respectful as possible. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Deck listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com deck. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com deck today. When it comes to your health, there should be no compromises. Don't go back to that doctor who doesn't fully listen to you or rushes through your appointment. Instead, check out ZocDoc. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Search by location, availability, and insurance. No compromises. And these doctors all have verified reviews from actual real patients. And you don't have to wait forever to get in with someone good. When I looked online, the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between just 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score some same-day appointments. Go to ZocDoc.com slash deck and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash deck. ZocDoc.com slash deck. They find out he's in jail. And ironically, he is in jail for charges of kidnapping and aggravated robbery. He commits this and is arrested on 6-23-2010. So we're talking, it's not even a full month between his arrest for a separate robbery and kidnapping charge, and it involved a firearm. Investigators went to the county jail where he was being held and sat down for a conversation with him. At first, things were going smoothly. He was happy to provide some background information on himself, and he said that he knew Danielle and considered her a friend, almost a sister. Then they moved on to Corey. He was asked if he knew the victim. He stated he did not. He had never heard of him talked about. He said they knew the name Corey, but none in particular, as in any individuals. It was right about this time that things took a turn. 
right when investigators asked him about a little motorized scooter. You see, Lee was known to drive one of those around town, and detectives asked him if he'd seen anyone else riding a scooter like his or if he knew anyone who resembled him. He became nervous, and at that time, he ended the interview and stated that he was no longer willing to talk. He wished to speak to an attorney. If you're scratching your head right now, I totally get it. A scooter? What does a scooter have anything to do with Corey's murder? We asked Detective Vi about the scooter part. Like if maybe someone had seen a scooter nearby the scene of the shooting, or if someone had seen a suspicious guy riding a scooter after the murder. And he said, as far as he knows, no, no scooter sighting. So I'm guessing that since police knew going into the interview that Lee drove a scooter, maybe they were trying to subtly trick him into thinking that someone had seen him or his doppelganger driving a scooter near the scene of the crime. That's the best I've got. But regardless of what their reasoning was, their hands were now tied and they left the Lee interview slightly more suspicious of him. But they were also keeping an open mind for their other suspect that they had yet to chat with. Muck. But Muck was a bit trickier to track down because he was believed to be experiencing homelessness at the time. It took a few weeks, but they eventually made contact with him and invited him down to the station. Investigators asked him directly about the threats he sent to Corey, and he said that it wasn't him. Like, yes, of course, it was his phone, but he didn't send the texts. Here's the story he told. He says he was at this party with a group of friends, including Danielle, Danielle's brother, and his daughter, who we'll call Polly. In the midst of all the socializing and mingling, Mook sat his phone down. And when he wasn't paying attention, Danielle had instructed Polly to grab his phone and send Corey those text messages. He did recall because he had talked to Polly's mom, and Polly's mom had talked to Polly, and Polly admitted that she had texted Corey those threatening statements at the direction of Danielle. Of course, police weren't just going to take Mook's word for it, so they tried to reach out to have a chat with Polly. But when they got in touch with her mom, she said that she didn't have any contact with Polly anymore. Detective Vi said nothing in the case file clarifies why this was the case, but apparently, once again, that was that. They didn't get to speak with Polly, and they continued on with their investigation, which was quickly centering around Lee and Danielle. It seemed like all signs were pointing toward Lee being the trigger man. All the more when they got his phone records and discovered that he'd actually called Corey's number the day of the murder. So much for Lee's claims that he didn't know Corey, right? Now, Lee could lie all he wanted, but there was one thing that wouldn't lie. DNA. Police gathered samples from Lee to compare to the tea bottle, but the testing was inconclusive, meaning that they weren't able to get enough DNA from the bottle to compare to Lee at all. So as suspicious as they were of him, they didn't really have a case against him. But they were building a pretty damning case against Danielle for her role in the homicide. That winter, police visited her at work for another interview, during which she corroborated Mook's story. That, okay, yes, she had instructed Polly to text Corey with Mook's phone, and she admitted she was mad at Corey for sleeping with other women. Now, even though Danielle was still playing the whole I wasn't involved card, police weren't buying it. And on January 10th, she was arrested on the preliminary charge of complicity. 
Now, if you're unfamiliar with that term, it's basically another way of saying aiding or abetting. After her arrest, Danielle was finally ready to come clean, specifically about the text that she'd sent to Lee. She admits that she did tell him these things. She was angry. She told investigators she believed Lee killed Corey and that her actions were to blame. But even with Danielle admitting to it, police knew they'd be fighting an uphill battle to get the charges to go through. Complicity is a hard charge because, let's be honest, beyond that, what we didn't have was anybody else under arrest for murder. Complicity is more than one. How do we have a complicity with one person? That's exactly what the grand jury must have thought, too, because they declined to indict Danielle. And just like that, she was let go, scot-free, and the charge was totally expunged from her record. Now, I'm hesitant to make too bold of a statement here because you all know I'm a firm believer in due process, innocent until proven guilty, all of it. So if a panel of nine of my smart and capable peers decided it didn't make sense to charge Danielle with complicity, so be it. I don't want to sound like I'm questioning their decision, but knowing what I know and everything I've just told you, I just can't help but wonder what it was that made them pump the brakes and say, maybe not. Like, do they know something I don't know? Or do they just have a higher threshold or standard than maybe I do for evidence or testimony that they want before they charge someone? Was it purely a technicality? Like, was it the fact that there was just one person they were being asked to indict for complicity? And really, in order to be complicit, you need two people. I don't know. What I do know, though, is that sadly, that grand jury decision was really the last big movement in the case. Investigators and family members have tried to keep Corey's murder in the public eye through media pushes, even putting up billboards in town. But they've gotten crickets in return. DPD has far from given up, though. Detective Vi said they still have everything evidence-wise in this case, including the tea bottle that they found at the scene. And as technology improves, he hopes that they'll be able to pull a better DNA sample from that bottle. And hopefully even get a match to someone, be it Lee or maybe someone who has yet to come on their radar. And there are still some people that they want to track down who might have valuable information, like Brandy, that woman who approached Carol at the funeral, and even Danielle's niece, Polly. And remember, that's not her real name, but if this episode gets to her, she'll know who she is. This case is far from being deadlocked, and DPD is ready to run down any tips that come their way. We would look for tips that have any information whatsoever, even if it's something that they believe that we may already know, because many times the things that they know come in a certain way from a certain source, and that source might be somebody that we need to talk to. It might be information we need to corroborate. And many times it'll give us just a little bit more. Sometimes these things are kind of like painting by numbers. When they come in, maybe we fill in everything that's marked three and we can see maybe a little bit better what it is. But those additional ideas, even if they, you may believe that they are, you know, reoccurring ideas, we still would love to talk to whomever about those. Any information, no matter how big, no matter how small, you know, send us everything. Corey's family is also nowhere near giving up the fight. 
Carol has spent the last 13 years turning her indescribable pain into advocacy for those experiencing the same thing. She's been active in Parents of Murdered Children and Moms Against Violence. And she's connected with other advocates across the state to fight for justice. I've always said, as long as I'm breathing, I'm Corey's voice. I have to talk for him and my family. I just want to say to whoever it is, I just want you to know you broke my heart. I went to counseling, and the first thing that the therapist told me before we got started, he said, first thing I want to say to you, whoever killed your son is free, but you have a life sentence. That spoke volumes. I have the life sentence, and it is a life sentence. I live this daily. It's been 13 years. Carol and Corey's kids and the rest of his family all deserve answers and justice. So if you know anything about the murder of Corey A. Mitchell, a.k.a. CM Dub, in May of 2010, or if you were the young woman who approached Carol at Corey's funeral, or if you're the girl that we're calling Polly, please call the Dayton Police Department Cold Case Unit at 937 333 7109. The Deck is an Audio Chuck production with theme music by Ryan Lewis. To learn more about The Deck and our advocacy work, visit thedeckpodcast.com. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. 